Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me in prayer, please. Lord, uh, thank you for uh, today. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our beds and into worship, Lord, with your bride. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the worship that we have experienced so far. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would continue to pour out your spirit among us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would honor our worship as we read and hear your word as we come to the table and make thanks for what Christ has done. And Lord, we pray, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to hear and to believe and to understand what you have written in your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we really dig into this, who here remembers Looney Tunes? The old Looney Tunes, right? Not new Looney Tunes, which is a... Horrible, horrible, no, I'm just kidding, I've not watched any of it. Uh, old Looney Tunes, right? And who here remembers the episodes, and they did this a lot, right, where Bugs Bunny was playing baseball, right? Right, so not only in those episodes was Bugs playing baseball, Bugs was playing every single position on the field, right? So one second he's pitching, the next he's catching, the next he's out in the right field to catch the fly ball or at least to pick it up, right? The next he's shortstop, the next he's catcher again to tag the batter out, who is either himself or somehow Elmer Fudd. But the way in which I think we approach the Gospels is like this a lot of times. right? So like Bugs Bunny playing baseball in every single position on the field, one moment we see Jesus teaching in Jerusalem. The next, he's 64 miles north in Nazareth. Then he's somehow on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, then he's in the Decapolis, and then he's back down in Jerusalem, and then sometimes, randomly, he seems to be up on the coast near the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Right? He's all over the place. 
And so sometimes it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around the continuity of how his ministry takes place. And usually we also don't really help the matter all that much when our own Bible readings are so scattered, right? Because we're, we're jumping in here and there and everything else. Now the reason I bring this up is because, very interestingly, at least to me, right? Because again, I do have a degree in history and so continuity is really important to me, right? But interestingly, our text today picks up right exactly where Chris left off last week after the feeding of the 5,000. So essentially... The end of Matthew 13, where Jesus goes back to Nazareth and is rejected by his hometown, all the way through Matthew 14, takes place over the course of like 48 hours. It's just a couple of days. And so Matthew begins our text this morning, and you see this here in your bulletin, he he begins it with a very Markian word. He begins it with a word that Mark uses all the time in his gospel, and it's the word immediately. Matthew actually uses this a lot in these few short verses. So he tells us, he says, immediately after they had gathered up these 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish, Jesus then commands, he makes his disciples get into the boat to cross over the side, and he also dismissed the crowds. So before, again, one more time before we dig into this, I want to make a really bold claim. And the reason I add this continuity in is because it will be helpful later on. But here's my bold claim, and I want you to bear with me as we go through this before you run me out of town. So here's my bold claim. This text is absolutely not about Peter walking on the water. Now, this text, that is an element of this scene, but that's not what this scene is about. This text also, to the chagrin of all of my preaching training, this text is also not about our stepping out in faith. Though, that is definitely an application of this passage. The primary focus of this text, here's my bold claim, or second part of my bold claim. The primary focus of this text, and of the text that Chris preached on last week with Jesus feeding the 5,000, is so that we understand that Jesus is God. That's the primary focus of this text. Anything more than that, while it could be absolutely fine, is secondary but it is built out of that primary purpose. Now that seems like a no-duh comment because we know that all of Scripture speaks of Christ, but that's something that needs to be said because if you're like me, you've probably heard sermons on this text before and they immediately go to Peter stepping out in faith and taking his eyes off of Jesus. That's immediately where the whole sermon goes. There's nothing wrong with that, but it misses the primary focus of the text. So to simplify Matthew 14 down to how we, or how Peter, or how the other 12 respond, it misses the one whom we are responding to. That's the point. So let me prove this bold claim, and I want to do that by focusing primarily on the first half of the text. So in your bulletins, it's where Jesus says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. That's the break. Right? Now we will look at that second half, but we're going to spend the most of our time in that first half. So starting just in those first couple of sentences, listen to verses 22 and 23 again. So again, immediately, right? There's that mark and word. Immediately, we've gathered up 12 baskets, get in the boat, go to the other side of the sea. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. That's the end of verse 23. It breaks the sentence in half, but that's the end of the verse. So what we have here now, again, is this scene begins, right? 
as is his habit, Jesus, what he does after either healing a lot or preaching a lot or teaching a lot, he separates himself immediately for prayer. This is what he does. It's his habit we see in all four Gospels. But he also separates his disciples from the crowds in this moment, which I think is, is kind of interesting. Now, personally, this is, this is me pulling out a minute and just being personal application. If I were to think of this, if I had been there, right? Now, I know most of us in the room would probably love to have been there, right? We want to see these miracles take place. But if I had been there, I would need a minute to process what I just witnessed, right? If, if I were one of the 12, especially, I would need some time, right? Because... Here's this little meager lunch of five loaves and two fishes. It has just fed 5,000 plus people. That, that's a wow factor that I, my brain could not wrap, it, wrap itself around. But I would also want a little bit of time without having to deal with any good-natured person in the crowd that knows I'm one of the 12 to come up to me and say, what did your master just do? Right? I, I don't know. I need time. I need to process this. So I think almost in some way it's a little bit of a mercy to go get in the boat and leave. Go right now. One commentator says this. He says that Jesus commanding his disciples to get into the boat is for the purpose of giving them the opportunity to show their faith in God's provision. Right now. Okay, that's fine. Because they've just seen Christ multiply a lunch so he can obviously provide for my food needs. So are they going to trust God for all of their needs? That's this commentator's point. Because really, if you think about it, it's oftentimes in most situations where, where our faith is tested in that moment where we think we've gotten the lesson. Right? So here they've gotten the lesson. Well, I've got it. You know what? I'll get in the boat. I'll trust Jesus for anything. And then a storm comes up. Right? But most of us have ignorantly asked the Lord for patience to almost immediately then be tested in our patience. Like We, we all understand that your faith is tested in those moments where you think you've gotten it. Right? So I would personally want some time to process this miracle. But then as we come to the rest of this first half, this is where the details start to get really interesting. So to avoid missing any of those details, I just want to take this a verse at a time. So picking up right where verse 23 left off, I'll read that again. It says, so he dismissed the crowds. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. All right. So, they're in the boat. This boat would have had a sail, but obviously the wind is against them, so more often than not in a sailboat, you usually lower the sail or do something with the sail because if it's too heavy, then it's going to rip the sail, right? So, they're rowing, right? They're rowing across the Sea of Galilee. They're sailing, and they are now a long way from the land. But by this time, they have stopped making progress because, as Matthew tells us, again, the wind was against them. Now, at face value, right, if you're reading this story for the first time and you are only getting to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, you're thinking, well, this shouldn't be a big deal because four of these 12 are professional fishermen, right? These are men who should not only be familiar with boats and with water, but they're familiar with sailing and they're familiar with really even night sailing and strong winds at this point. They live on the water. Their entire livelihood depends on it, so this should be no big deal. But then we start looking at how far they've gone. Along with the time frame that Matthew gives us. And we have to kind of blend some of the other Gospels to help us out here. So Matthew tells us here in verse 24 that they had gone a long way from the land. 
uh, in the Greek, this is something like many stadia. John tells us, thankfully, in John chapter 6, verse 19, that they had rowed only about three or four miles. So he gives us a little bit more detail. Right now, obviously, he would not have written miles in Greek. He would have said it more precise, and we just have translated it. But in verse 23, though, the verse that we just ended on a minute ago, we read that it was evening time by the time Jesus had commanded them to cross and he dismissed the crowds. And so then, and we'll read in more detail verse 25 in a minute, but in verse 25, Matthew tells us that it is the fourth watch of the night when Jesus comes to them on the water. So that is between the hours of 3 and 6 a.m. So it's evening. And after they had rowed many miles from the land, it's 3 and 6 a.m. They've only gone about three or four miles. So again, think about this detail. Think about how this sets up the context. From the end of verse 23... To the beginning of verse 25, the disciples had been rowing for about nine hours. That's a long time to row a boat. <laughs> That's a long time to be rowing about eight miles. Because the Sea of Galilee is only about eight miles wide. And they're just going to the other side. They're not going from north to south. They're going from east to west. Now, to give you an idea of context of how far that even is, from our house to Christ Community Church is only seven and a half miles. So that gives you an idea of distance, right? Going three or four miles over nine hours, that's a long time to not have gone very far. So something else has to be going on, which is, Matthew tells us, he says, they were beaten by the waves and the wind was against them. A storm had blown up. Now the Sea of Galilee is not unfamiliar with storms. Storms happen in this area all the time. It's the second lowest lake in the world, it, the other one being the Dead Sea, right? And they're both connected by the Jordan River. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake. And that is just interesting, you know, Jeopardy trivia. But the point being is it's also surrounded by mountain ranges, which means storms come off the Mediterranean Sea pretty regularly and blow up on this, on this sea, almost to the point of hurricane-force winds. And so now, this is now the second storm on the Sea of Galilee that these disciples have experienced, according to Matthew, the other one being in chapter 8. So then, for nine hours at this point, these men have been rowing against a strong wind, against rain, against waves, crashing over the side of the boat, all to row maybe at max four miles. Now, we've got to give them credit, though, for their perseverance, right? This is a strong storm, but they're, they're doing it, right? Jesus had told them, Look, guys, get in the boat and cross the sea. I'll meet you over there. Okay, I'm going to give it my best shot. Right? They, they've done what they can do. But I want to hang out on this phrase, though, beaten by the waves, because this is interesting. It gives us actually our first, in my opinion, really major interesting detail to consider in this passage. All this other stuff up until this point has been context about to the miracle that they're about to witness. Right? It's just Matthew is doing a great job of saying, here's what's happened it really sets the scene. This is a bad situation. But a better translation of this word beaten in the Greek is the word tormented. Some of your translations might read that. I don't know. So they had been rowing. They were a long way from land. And they were tormented by the waves. Now why is that interesting? Why did that pique my interest? It's interesting because this same Greek word is used throughout the entire New Testament to refer to demonic hostility. 
here's where it gets really cool. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 6, so before the first storm that Jesus calms, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 6, the centurion uses this exact same word in the Greek to describe his servant who was laying in bed sick and paralyzed at home. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 5, John uses this same word to describe the torments that are poured out on the earth after the blowing of the fifth trumpet. These are hellacious torments. So here's what this tells us. It tells us that this is not a light, simple, summer thunderstorm. For all intents and purposes, this is a storm that is being poured out from hell itself. This is a horrible, horrible storm. And as Jesus comes to these tormented men walking on the hell waters, he shows them his authority not only over creation by providing food for 5,000 plus hungry people, but also his authority over the spiritual forces of evil at work in the heavenlies. So yes, absolutely, right? This is not to deny that this was a literal storm that happened. I'm not denying that fact. Historically, this happened. But these events always speak to deeper truths. And it tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities. This is a real storm that speaks to the reality of spiritual warfare. And it speaks to our faith in Christ's authority over those spiritual forces of evil that are at work in the world. So then moving into verse 25, into that next sentence, it gives us our second major interesting detail. So it tells us this. So again, context. Bad storm, wind, waves, tormenting from hell. And in the fourth watch of the night, he, Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. We're all set up now, right? We understand what's going on. We can mentally picture this. Again, I mentioned this a moment ago, but the fourth watch of the night covers the hours of 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., so the pre-dawn hours. This is not an arbitrary hour for Jesus to come to them. We see a few verses back that he went by himself to pray, and then when evening came, he was there alone. He, was, he, he waited a very long time to pray. He waited at least nine hours, but if he waited till closer to six in the morning, he waited about 12 hours to finally show up on the sea. This is not an arbitrary hour, nor did he do this by random happenstance. The fourth watch of the night has been called the hour of Yahweh's intervention. So let me give you some passages that make this really neat. So think of this. It is the fourth watch of the night, the exact same time of night, when in Exodus chapter 14, verse 24, Yahweh throws the Egyptians into a panic while Israel is crossing the Red Sea. These elements are the same. We shouldn't miss these here, right? Crossing a sea is involved, and God intervenes. Matthew, like Isaiah before him, understands that Christ brings a new exodus. Speaking of Isaiah, we've read this already in Sunday school, but let me read it to you again. In Isaiah 17, verses 13 to 14, Isaiah says this, The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but Yahweh will rebuke them, and they will flee far away. Chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror. They were out on the water through the night. Terror, this hellacious storm comes up. But before morning, the fourth watch of the night, they are no more. The storm is no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. Church father Chromatius, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, 
he lived in the late 300s into the 400s, he understands the spiritual application of these night watches. And so he says this. He says that the first watch of the night is from Adam to Noah. The second is from Noah to Moses. The third watch of the night is from Moses to Christ. But the fourth watch marks the time when the Son of God was born in the flesh and suffered. It marks the time that he, was, he promised to his disciples and to his church that he would be eternally watchful after his resurrection. It marks the time where he promises us that I will be with you always until the end of the age. He says, we are in the fourth watch, so look to Christ, our Lord and our God. Christ comes to them in the hour of Yahweh's intervention. That time is not arbitrary. But it points us to the next two interesting details of this, of this passage. It points us to the disciples' perception of Yahweh's intervention and Jesus' response to their perception. Listen again to these next two verses. So he comes walking on the sea, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now for ancient peoples, and really, honestly, and we think ancient, we think you know, thousands of years ago, rightly so, but really this, this lasted all the way up until probably four or five, six hundred years ago. The ocean, the sea, the large bodies of water were a place where monsters dwelt. This is a place where evil spirits, the, the waters were the place of hell. Right? We really don't have an inkling of the magnitude of Columbus crossing the Atlantic. We, we really don't. We have always lived in a world that, by our perception, and rightly so, has always been round, <laughs> and where every undiscovered country and land has been discovered. We live in a world that has been explored, but not these people. And for the Jewish mind, being taken down into the depths of the waters was no different than being dragged to Sheol, being dragged to death. This is Jonah's exact prayer after he is swallowed by the fish in Jonah 2. My, I am in Sheol, Lord. I'm crying out from the depths of the dead. So for these disciples, the only thing in their mind at this point, right? A storm from hell is being poured out on them, and they see a guy walking on the water. Of course they're going to think it's a ghost, because they think that they have been drugged down to the place of the dead. They are filled with terror. You can't blame them. But then Jesus, as God always does when he manifests himself, speaks to them a word of comfort. And he says this, immediately, there's that word again, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. This is what we've been building up to. Are y'all ready to have some fun? Because this is fun. Jesus corrects their fears at once. It's a ghost. Guys, I'm terrified there's a ghost on the, on the sea. Do not be afraid. He corrects them with this phrase, it is I, which in the Greek are these two words, ergo aiming, which literally translated is the phrase, I am. The way in which Jesus speaks this term is meant to not only be self-authenticating, but self-identifying. Just like his coming at the fourth watch of the night, he did not utter this phrase by accident. It's not by happenstance. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, God tells, God says, I am 
God Almighty, Yahweh Elohim Almighty. In Isaiah, he says in multiple places, I am he who blots out your transgressions. And also, I am Yahweh, there is no other. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In Exodus 3, 13 and 14, he proclaims, I am who I am. Jesus declares himself before Abraham was, I am before Abraham was, ergo ami. This exact same phrase. For all intents and purposes, the disciples who were being assailed by a tormenting storm from hell felt that in this moment a ghost was a sure sign of their death and being dragged to Sheol, the realm of the dead and the demonic. But instead, Yahweh himself was coming to them, treading upon the sea. He says, do not be afraid, I am. This is the I am of Psalm seventy-seven, nineteen who provides a way through the seas and a path through the many waters, leaving footprints unseen. This is the I am of Job, chapter, seven, uh, chapter 9, verse 8, who alone stretches out the heavens and who alone strides upon the waves of the sea. This is the I am of Isaiah, chapter 46, verse 16, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters. Just as Yahweh treads the waters, so does Christ Jesus our Lord. Telling us, that this verse, this phrase, is the focal point for this entire scene. Jesus' use of I am is not coincidental. It's not happenstance. It's not by accident. Instead, his every literal footstep in this scene screams of his divine personhood as God incarnate. He says, do not be afraid. I am. So with that context, think of how the rest of this text plays out. Peter answers him, Lord, if it is you, then command me to come to you on the sea, on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat and the wind ceased, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. It's here, again, where we oftentimes try to immediately go when we see this, when we read this passage. And we try to move immediately into fitting, into fitting the scene into how it relates to me, right? How does this relate to us? And so we might think of something along the lines of this. Well, obviously, Jesus came to the disciples in the midst of their storm, so he's going to also come to me in the midst of mine. Now that's absolutely true. right? If you are a child of God, Christ and God care for you. <laughs> he cares about what you're going through. But it's also in this, in this moment where we can make close to a fatal error when we're reading the scriptures. Now again, I, I won't deny, and I do agree, every jot and tittle speaks of Christ and speaks about how God wants to know us through Christ Jesus. But the personal application reading of a text moves us too quickly from what Jesus does to asking, what does he do for me? We make it about ourselves. And that's the fatal error. Now, it's a valid question to ask of Scripture, but that question is secondary. And in our efforts to personally apply the Scripture, we make 
The secondary, primary, and we leave ourselves in a position to miss the primary altogether. So the primary reading of this text is not, what will Jesus do for me? But rather, who is Jesus? This is the guy that's walking on the water and has, and has made a meager lunch into a giant meal. This is the same Jesus that calms the storms of our lives, but we aren't able to grasp how until we properly understand who. So what the feeding of the 5,000 does and what Jesus walking on the sea does is to help us understand exactly who this guy is. He is the God of all creation. He is the one through whom and by whom and for whom all things have been created. He is the one who, because he is the one by whom and for whom and through whom all things have been created, this is how he can multiply a meager lunch into a, to feed a multitude and how he can walk upon the water and how he can empower his disciples to imitate him. That's what Peter's example teaches us. It teaches us that Jesus expects us to follow his example in every way. This is the exact thing that we pray for every single week before we come to the table. We pray as we follow his example and obey his command, Lord, grant by the power of your Holy Spirit these gifts of bread and wine may be to us his body and his blood. We pray as a church, make us follow your example, Lord. And so when Peter here in verse 28 responds to Jesus saying, ergo, amy, he's merely asking once again, Jesus, let me imitate you. And the way Peter responds in the way we read it seems almost impetuous, right? We read this and he goes, Lord, if it is you, then command me to come to you on the water. We almost read it like it's a snotty little kid who's never been punished for anything, right? He's a little spoiled brat. And he goes, I don't believe you. If it really is you, then let me come to you. Honestly, it kind of sounds like Satan sneering at Christ in the wilderness, right? If you really are who you say you are, then let me do this thing. But that's not how this is written. Peter isn't sneering. What he's doing is he's asking directly to imitate Christ. The one thing that all of us are to primarily be about. The way this reads in the Greek is a lot more helpful. It reads like this instead. It says something like, since it is you. Since it is you, then let me imitate you. Peter doesn't doubt Jesus. He doesn't even doubt who he is in this moment. Instead, he has faith in Jesus and desires to imitate the master that he has come to trust. And we know it because he gets out of the boat. If he didn't have faith that this was Christ, he wouldn't have gotten out of the boat. That's the point. But it's only due, and we see this as you keep reading, it's only due to the demonic tormenting of the storm that he then begins to doubt. We read here again, Jesus tells him, he says, come. And so Peter got out of, the out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. He wasn't on his way to Jesus like we always see in every possible rendition of this on screen. He actually makes it to Christ. But then he sees the storm, he sees the wind. We only see the wind by its effects on everything, right? So the waves are still high, the rain is still pouring, the boat is still rocking, the water is sloshing around him and he's, and he's walking on it. And that's when he begins to doubt. Doubt here is defined as something like trying to do two separate things at once, trying to go in two separate directions at the same time, kind of like trying to serve two masters. In this case, Peter is given a choice, right? He's given, he has the opportunity to either have faith or be afraid. 
And having forgotten his faith in that moment, he's standing face to face with Jesus. His fear returns. And the moment his fear of the storm returned, he does exactly what we all do in a moment of doubt. He forgets the word of Yahweh who is standing right in front of him, treading on the waves and causing him to do the same. Now, all of us regularly experience a combination of faith and doubt, telling us that the answer to the question that Jesus asks Peter here in verse 31, he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The answer to that question is, there is no reason to doubt in the presence and authority of I am. Which is why Matthew tells us at the end of this passage, the only conclusion, conclusion to an event like this is that Jesus is God who is worthy to be worshipped and honored and praised as the great I am. So if you need an application from this, as my seminary training tells me to give you, it would be this. Peter's doubt is just the setting, but it's not the lesson. This text teaches us that Jesus demonstrates his power and his compassion and his authority because he is the I am regardless of the tormenting storm threatening our lives. Peter succumbed to fear and took his eyes off of Jesus. But Matthew isn't telling us that Peter failed, so don't be like Peter. What he's telling us is that Jesus did not fail Peter. Peter might have taken his eyes off of Christ, but Christ never took his eyes off of Peter. Nor does he take his eyes off of you and me. So like Peter, we will absolutely doubt. And you will stumble. And you will most assuredly fail on a regular basis. But as Psalm 29 tells us, the voice of Yahweh is over the waters. And the voice of Yahweh is powerful. And the voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. And Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood, and he sits enthroned as king forever. So, beloved in Christ, take heart and do not be afraid, because Yahweh is still walking upon the waves. And because of Christ Jesus our Lord and the seal of the Holy Spirit, we are secure and safe in the presence of the great I Am.